Hey everyone, and welcome to part two of our PTSI series featuring Dr. Tillman and Ben Westcott. We are going to jump right back into our discussion with them and bring you the second half of the chat we got to have with Dan, Holly, and myself. So here it is. Okay, Brent, I got a question for you, and this comes from a layman, all right? A layman and a skeptic and an old guy and all that kind of stuff. I so, love that. I love you guys. <laughs> but so, you're asking for a friend. I'm asking yes, for a friend. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I work in a pretty big fire department, and we have a peer support group, and they're all right. a bunch of good people, and I see their poster on the wall, and I'd say, okay, I picked that guy, I picked that person, this one's all right, I'd never talk to this person. So, and I work in a fire station with 10 people. And so we go on a lot of calls and I I hate to say this, but I'm indifferent about the majority of the calls, but I work with a lot of young people where I know it affects them. So what is, as the old guy, what can I do to be that mental health first responder before the peer support group person comes in to make sure that this, this event is not life altering? You know what I mean? Yes. I know exactly, Dan, what you're saying. And I love the fact that you're asking that question because you guys are the driving force of this. They look at you guys and they say, if I ask for help, I'm a sissy because Dan never would, you know? And so what you can do is understand what we're talking about here. Even so, Dan, the the key to this is you you say I'm an old, you know, I'm an old guy who just is a real skeptic on this stuff. And and I hear you. I, I what you and have skeptic to realize, is the wrong word, and I, I because you, you've made a believer out of me, which I think is making me uncomfortable, uh, which is good, right? It's good, and I think about how I'm messing up my kids and the whole thing. So. Oh gosh, no! Oh, no, 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 no. no. So continue yeah, on. No, Keep going. Not, absolutely. Okay. So so let me go on with this. How do we do? You are the key, and you are, and then we'll talk about this too. You are the key because you are the guy people look at and say, "Okay, if he'll do it." then I'm, or at least if he's willing to talk about it, then it's okay for me to, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you do is at the end of your calls and these, whatever they are, these bad calls with these newbies, these new guys that are going out there, what you do literally is you pull them together for five minutes, not a diffusing or you can call it whatever you want to call it, but you can say, guys, what was the hardest part about that for you that's just the question or one-on-one what was the hardest part about that call for you and and then it is so was there anything that just kind of weird you know um anything weird about that call that just kind of sticks with you now as we just left that okay so and what you do is you allow them to walk through that call and you explain to them why you're doing it the key here is most people think i'm doing it for my feelings this has nothing to do with your feelings. Hey, the reason I ask that question is because sometimes it's hard for this crap um, that's really, really intense to go where it needs to go. And so what happens is it just keeps staying where we think about it a lot. So I want to ask you a few questions that will give you that opportunity to begin putting it where it needs to be. I wish I had done this from the very beginning because then I would have had a very, very good filing system uh, that worked for me. Now I kind of just file it as it comes, right? And and that's what you give them is the education. If they know the why, then they're willing to do the what. That's but so we don't good. give them the why. We just say talk. You know, talk about it. Right. But I that's like that. not enough, mm-hmm. right? What did you say? If they know the why, they're willing to do the what. That's, that's really right. Good. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. So yeah. 
Dr. Tillman, if someone wants to find out more about you or your services, what would be the best way for them to reach you? So we have got that grant that I told you about. We've got readinessgroup.com, which is readiness. Uh, our, our website is readinessgrp.com. Uh, and you can get our information, contact information off of that. But the other one, and it's got some great resources on it, you guys, is um, uh, the First Responder Resiliency Program Facebook page. Okay. And uh, we're starting to do a testimony program now, guys, um, like you, Dan, who have, you know, just been in this business for a long time. And now what they're starting to see is that burnout rate at the top. And they want to do it differently for their young guys. They want something different. So they're going to talk. Uh, yesterday I talked to a police chief who actually, his wife passed away from cancer and he couldn't get away from the guilt four years later of just talking to other women. EMDR, he said, I knew it worked when all of a sudden I sat down with somebody and had a conversation and actually thought to myself, she's nice without thinking, oh my God, I'm going out on my wife. Mm-hmm. You know, right. And so when you you think about those things, we just don't know what life's going to bring us to. But we do know that if if we understand that this is pretty common of what happens with trauma in the brain, um, then if I do these things, then I'm going to find the resources that I need. And uh, so we give them the we give them the the what and the why. And then all of a sudden what we find is. Um, all of a sudden they take it and run with it. And that's what we want. We've got resilient people out there doing this job. You guys wouldn't do this if you weren't resilient. Mm -hmm. But we need to give them the information um, so that they can run with it and strengthen themselves on the backside. Wow. Post-traumatic growth. That's what we're looking for. Love it. I love it. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Yeah, go ahead. Ben, go ahead. I just wanted to jump in real quick on what uh, Dan was asking about. Um, every time that I've, I've spoke with a group, um, I always end it and try and challenge a certain group of individuals. And that's the senior hands, uh, the drivers, the captains, lieutenants, those guys that have been there. Um, in a tone that the, the biggest way that they can help, it's, uh, besides having that education for themselves, is just having the courage to have that conversation. If we just open up and, and just Man, like like Doc said, man, what stood out to you? You know, was there was there something that just kind of pings in your memory on it? And man, they made a firehouse kitchen table for a reason, mm, right? That's true. We, yeah. we just got to use it. You know, it's it's getting right. past the stigma and just this isn't after action. You know, we're not talking about policies and what we could have right. done better and that kind of thing. We're just talking about what stood out to you. If you just have that conversation, that's what starts this whole process. You know, Ben, I love that. I love that. And yesterday, Ben told a story at training. Ben, the one about the music, you know, somebody. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just Mm -hmm. just real quickly, because it's a perfect example. So a local fire department called me up. Uh, Chief Lale called me and said, hey, that's a new guy. They're on a real bad call. I wonder if you could come over and talk with them, right? So go over and and this wasn't a, you know, the kumbaya, how's your feelings, you know, what you see and that kind of thing. This was just giving them the education of this is how trauma stores and this is what you can do on your own to work through those and walk through those calls, right? I'm, I'm not here to, to talk feelings and that kind of thing. I just want you to be educated so you know when this stuff comes up, how to process it. Um, so I gave that challenge just to, you know, just, just uh, you know, 
talk about what stood out to you, you know, um, bring up that one little thing that, that, that has to do with one of those five senses, um, the, to, to just start the conversation. So it was kind of quiet and a younger guy in the back after they kind of just started talking, he speaks up and he goes, uh, anybody else hear Bob Dylan? And the whole room kind of goes <laughs> and he's looking at him like, what is this dude talking about? And, uh, I can imagine the fear this guy had being a rookie, you know, talking about Bob Dylan in such the middle of this meeting, uh, with the entire shift there. Um, and uh, one of the other guys, there's a senior guy there, so he goes, man, I heard Bob Dylan too. Well, it turns out there's a radio that was playing in the shop while they were working this call, and there was a Bob Dylan song playing. And oh, that was man. something that just stuck out to him. And just memor- remembering something like that and talking about that and assigning one of those five senses to that traumatic event starts that process of downloading and putting it away into a memory where it's supposed to be instead of just sitting there in the front of your head uh, that's going to wreak havoc on you years later. And you think wow. it triggers, Dan, I love that. I mean, you think it triggers every time a certain song comes on, every time a smell comes up, you guys know this triggers are, you know, it'll take you back that quickly. If it's not something that you have control over, you know, if it's not something that you put in that right, you know, place in the hippocampus to be able to protect it. So it's not always on, it's not always ruminating. But a Bob Dylan song that would take you back to um, that horrible event every time would only lead itself, perhaps in the future, to something that would be more triggering as well. And and the last thing you want to uh, eliminate is your ability to listen to music uh, for being especially triggered Bob Dylan. Yeah, sure. And Bob Dylan, especially, that's exactly right. So, and also for the, yeah. for the guys who didn't remember it, if they were triggered by that song for some reason, they would... Have yep. no idea. Right. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Wow. That's an awesome example. Yeah, it is. I keep, I would say over the last few years since my event, it's been, there's little things that come up and, you know, I can, I can definitely deal with them now and they don't cause like, you know, a rush of emotion or anything, but there are still things that come up and you're like, oh man, there it is again. Like, and then you start to process it a little bit like, well, what, what could that be? What component could this yeah. be? And, it's really interesting how all this stuff is intertwined and you really don't know about some of the things until they pop up. Uh, and now you have the tools yeah. to be able to process it and For put sure. it where it belongs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the key is you're not thinking of it as abnormal. Mm-hmm. Now you're thinking of, Oh, there's another memory, you know, and right. you, you recognize it. You think, okay, how do I work with that? So I put it where it needs to be mm-hmm. versus how do I run from that? So I never think of it again. And somebody has right. to look at me like I'm crazy. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So um, let's pivot to Ben's story. Ben, I'm really, um, one, thankful that you're you know willing to chit-chat with us and everybody else who listens to this. And um, I'm just going to kind of let you take it and run with it. Start where you think a good place to start is, and we'll kind of sure. walk through uh, what you've been through, and then we'll come up with some questions if we have any um, yeah. as you're talking. Yeah, if I say something, jump in there and ask me. Doc, you correct me if I'm wrong on any of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I didn't even know until about three years ago that I even had a story. Um, I was just kind of blind to it, you know. Um, Much like everybody else that's been through fire academy and paramedic school or police academy and those things, um, I was told uh, by my instructors, hey, you're signing up for a job. 
where you're going to see the worst things in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's that, that classic statement of you just suck it up and do your job, right? That's what you're training for. You let your training work. So that's what I did um, for my entire career up until about three years ago is I just sucked it up. I did the job. I pushed the emotions back and um, I just kept moving forward. Uh, what that did to me, um, and honestly, without even knowing it, was it started to make my entire world crash down around me. Um, you know, listening to your story uh, on the podcast the other day is um, exactly the types of things that I started experiencing. Mm. Um, but a lot of those I started blocking out. Um, and there was one afternoon, uh, I'll try and say this without motion, but um, it was one evening in the house and my wife came up and she stopped me and she put her hand on my chest and she said, uh, she said, I don't know what's wrong with you but you need help. Mm-hmm. She wow. said, you're destroying our family. And I couldn't believe it. Like this, this was like out of nowhere. Right. right. I'm going, what in the world? How could she say that to me? Stop deal. Um, and that's where, that's where my story kind of turned. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, from just the unknowing, uneducated doing what I, all the other firemen are doing to, where I'm moving in now. Uh, so that led me to reaching out for help. Uh, I spent some time and I was pretty hangry. Um, and I, I said to myself, I was like, okay, you're broken, right? Uh, she pointed some stuff out to me that was going on. Getting up two, three times a night to change the sweat during sheets. I wouldn't show up until after the kids were home, in bed. That way I didn't have to interact with them. And, you know, it, there, there was all of these things that were going on. Um, and the realization that I'd come to a point where I was ready to be done with the fire service. Mm-hmm. I was done. I just wanted to go earn my paycheck, go home, block everything out, um, until I had to go back on ship again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I reached out, uh, to Chief Fishman, a friend of mine, uh, who did the, the CIS film. I was like, okay, well, maybe somebody I could call and they'll give me some info, right? I trust this guy. He's a brother. I've known him for a long time. So I call him up and it kind of, it startled me when he, when I, I said, Hey, Trish says when I messed up, I needed to talk to somebody. I figured maybe he could help. And the first thing he asked me, he said, Ben, are you suicidal? Mm-hmm. And it, I was stunned. And I was like, no, I, I'm not suicidal. And he goes, okay, good. And I'm like, yeah. I guess that's good. <laughs> right. uh, he goes, I want you to call this lady. He's like, uh, I want you to come and talk to her and she's going to help you. And I was like, okay. You know, and uh, he's like, I'm going to send you the number. So he texted me the number. Here's coming in being, I said, okay. And he goes, no, I want you to call her right now. Right. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, it's late. I'll call her tomorrow morning. And he goes, no, you're going to call her right now. He goes, I know where you live. <laughs> if you don't answer the phone and I find out that you haven't called her, I'm coming to your house and we'll call her. And I'm like, okay, fine. Right. So that's how I got introduced to Dr. Tillman. Mm-hmm. Um, so I met with her. <laughs> yeah, he pushed it. There was no backing down from it. Mm-hmm. He he had the ability to recognize what was going on, that training, that education, and he pointed me to the resource, right? There wasn't any of this uh, timidness about it or anything like that. It was, hey, this is what's going on. Here's how you fix it. Make this phone call. 
Ben, had he seen um, um, your trajectory during this time, or was he someone that you were removed from that you just called for advice? You know, I think uh, I think I had done a pretty good job of hiding it, but I I was I know Chief well enough that I was like I was honest with him. You know, that hey, this is what's going on. Church said I messed up because of these things, and when he when I told him those things, immediately he knew, hey, this is this is where you need to be. You need to call this lady right now. You know, um, and that, that's something that I learned later with, you know, I've never been suicidal. Um, you know, I've, I've never had any suicidal thoughts, but what scares me more than that is that all of the guys in the fire service that we see all these statistics on that have been committing suicide, I understood why they were doing it and it, I didn't have a problem with that. And that scared the hell out of me. Yeah. Like, it like, like later on when I learned that. Yeah, you know, it made sense while they were doing it. And later on, after I started going through this process, that got more and more scary. Like, holy crap, like I I was like on that path, you know. Hmm. Um, so I did. I went through EMDR, uh, which uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely turned me around. It, it's what reset my course was going through that EMDR. Hey, and, Ben, quick you know, question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Quick question. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, please. So let's say you didn't have that intervention. Mm-hmm. What, where do you think you'd be right now? Man, you know, I've thought about that so many times. Um, where would I be? I, and my honest feeling is, is I would probably, uh, I'd probably end up being divorced. Mm-hmm. I would probably end up uh, doing something to lose my career, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I passed that. I don't know. I don't know if I would have got to a suicidal stage. I know that I was having some pretty horrific nightmares and night terrors, um, that wouldn't go away. Um, I don't, I don't know where I'd be. It, 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 it kind of bothers me that, you know, that I don't have that clarity, but, um, it wouldn't be in a good spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Um, but that, that EMDR, um, Man, that, that's some for real stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to lie. And I've told this to Dr. Face. Um, <laughs> I was like, when she said, hey, we're doing MDR, right? And I was going, oh, God, right? I'm going to do some hocus pocus. Yes. You know, like yes. fairy dust, like magic, <laughs> uh, you know, psychotherapy, whatever. And if the guys ever find out about this, mm-hmm. I'm done for, right? right. There's no, yeah. this is. Right. I was like, yeah, here we go, right? So I went through the EMDR with, with uh, Dr. Stillman, and I tell you what, when she, when you talk about, you know, I told that story through to her, uh, I told her just kind of some of the major stuff that I'd been involved with as far as call-wise and, and that kind of thing. And she did just like uh, what your counselor did. She picked up on some of those things to hit on during the actual EMDR. Um, and I remember sitting there and, we were getting into some of the time that I spent down at Katrina. Mm. Um, I had gone down there not as a fireman or for rescue, but I had gone down with my part-time job, which was working at the medical examiner's office or the coroner's office. Um, so I'd spent a week down there doing body collection uh, oh, from man. a boat. Yeah, uh, good times. There's some great stories from that. Um, there is uh, There was actually a bunch of stuff that had happened that I had pushed so far back that consciously, when I was talking about it to other people, I didn't even remember. 
uh, it was buried that deep that EMDR brought out. Right. Right. I remember when she started bringing that stuff up, um, I could sit there with my eyes closed. I could smell the water mm. as I was standing there. We used the, uh, the split at 10 and 610 on the north end of New Orleans to the boat ramp, those bridges. And I, I, I felt like I was standing on that bridge and could smell the water. It was that realistic. Brought it back that fast, you know. Wow. Um, and digging into that is where I found what one of my triggers was that I had no idea. And that trigger was we had moved to our new property out here. We bought some acreage. And at the end of our driveway, there's a stock tank down there that I was driving past every day, right? Just regular stock tank. Mm -hmm. Um, That water was the exact same color as the water in New Orleans. And that had become a trigger. And I didn't even know that was what had kind of set this stuff off and kind of sent me, you know, speeding down this path of self-destruction. And they didn't even know that was the trigger. Wow. Um, So you're seeing that every day. So, you know, I'm saying every, you know, every day, twice a day, it's right there at the end of my driveway. You know, I mean, I can look out the front of my house. I see the tank down there. We see deer around it all the time, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know that that's what was triggering these nightmares and these thoughts and this, you know, the, the behavioral patterns of just, you know, seclusion and stuff like that. Just trying to get away from something, but I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so can I ask a question? So when you went yeah. to see the doctor, and maybe you said this and I just missed it. Did you have a specific event in mind or was it a chronic, was it a whole bunch of stuff and you didn't know what it was? Ma'am, mine was cumulative. Okay. I, there wasn't an event that set me off. Um, my event that turned it was when my wife came up and stopped me. Okay. My wife is the most quiet, uh, compassionate, very caring. She's not uh, confrontational. Uh, and when she stopped me, you know, hand on the chest, like no stop, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're going to listen to me type thing. Um, that was my event that, that kind of opened my eyes to, okay, I can't hide this anymore type deal. Like I've been trying to do, cause I, I was doing the justification of, oh, this is normal, right? All the other guys have to deal with this. This is normal. You know, these, these thoughts are normal. These actions are normal, you know, that kind of thing. And we're really going to um, justifying our actions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So yes, good. we are. Too absolutely. Good. And we're really good at hiding them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's be real. We're really good. I was, uh, I was the best person at hiding emotions until like I was in the produce aisle, bawling my eyes out. (laughs) And I can't, I can't (laughs) control it. You know, it was like, oh man, this is something I got to look into this. Yeah. Yeah, well, our our careers are overrun with alpha personalities, and I'll be damned if anybody's going to see me, you know, compromised in that. Right. So we had that stuff. And, uh, and I can so just like Im- said, that that was my turning point. I can just imagine how it is for for in this. Maybe I'm stereotyping, but Texas is a pretty tough state. I can just imagine. Yeah. I mean, I'm we're pretty touchy feely at my fire department. Right, you know, hugs mm-hmm. and such all around. You guys do yoga in your uh, right. academies, right? Yeah. Exactly. Are you yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> so I can uh, just imagine how, how tough it would be for you to do that. Absolutely, it's um, you know, there's you get into the fire service here in, in the Texas area, and especially like, well, pretty much anywhere in Texas. A lot of times, it's the guys that live out in the country. They work in the city, you know. So I mean, you, you get some pretty 
tough guys that, tough you know, boys. like grew up hardworking and, you know, living in the farm or ranch. And, you know, so, I mean, it's, it's extreme, it gets extremely competitive. It's very alpha dominant, mm-hmm. um, you know, which makes it tough for the rookies trying to make their spot, which, you know, like I said, um, with the other talking about the guys that aren't sleeping, you know, that rookie had the ability to speak up, you know, and say, yeah. you know, what about Bob Dylan? You know, yeah. so, um, little did he know yeah, what that would do, you know, that's, yeah, if that's exactly. not the most it, picture it perfect way of telling someone, hey, just share what's on your brain, you never know like right. how many people are going to clue into that and, and latch on to it and have the yeah, same absolutely. feelings. You know, that's, that's the whole thing about the education that goes along with this. You know, I, I'm sure that all of y'all went through the exact same training and they probably said something pretty similar of, hey, you're going to go to the worst calls ever. Mm-hmm. Right. People don't call you on a good day. You know, all those, those, uh, those little phrases that have been around for years and years. And, and then there's that one phrase. I'm sure everybody heard it in training somewhere was you suck it up and do the job. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Yep. Uh, which that's a very alpha thing to say, right? You suck it up, you do the job, you do your training, you know, you, you, you let that work and that kind of thing. And by definition, and, we can't say no when someone calls 911. Right. We don't get to no. say no. Exactly. Right. You have to go and, and do it. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a problem. Yeah, I don't have a problem with the suck it up and do your job because that's exactly what we have to do, right? Correct. That's why we train. That's why we do this line of work, and that's why uh, it's a calling to do it. But the second part of that that they never trained on was after you suck it up and do your job, you go back and you work that crap off your plate. Mm-hmm. you've got to get yourself taken care of. You know, you've got to get this stuff put away where it belongs. That way we don't keep building our statistics in the fire service and first responder uh, world that are so terrible, you know, as far as suicides and attrition rates and all that kind of thing. And the part <laughs> that we don't keep track of, which is the people who maybe retire early and then go home and drink themselves oh, to death. Absolutely. Or they, um, get, um, medical retirement mm-hmm. for their whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't even right. count that part as as part of these statistics. Right. Yeah. I can think yeah. back so, to a handful of people that left our department with all the warning signs. Yeah. And yeah. I can't, I, it, mm-hmm. it breaks my heart to think that maybe they had one or two opportunities to talk about it, but it wasn't part of the, understanding that I'm in this job, this is going to happen. I'm going to feel these, you know, certain ways a few times throughout my career. And I just, here's the resources that are at my disposal. Instead it was suck it up, buttercup. Mm -hmm. Like this is the way it is. And, you know, go home, kick the dog, drink a bunch and, you know, be a jerk to everyone around you Mm -hmm. and then come back 48 hours later and yeah, and do it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you say grumpy? Yeah, yeah. Dictated. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's dictated our service for so long. Absolutely. It has. And I tell you, Ben, I just think about Scott Lale, who's the Cleveland fire chief out in, here in Texas. Um, he was, he wasn't sure about this too, Dan. He talked so much about, look, I'm, you know, I, I don't get the buy-in for a lot of this. And then all of a sudden, an old, uh, a, reti- a, a retired chief who had moved on and was going on of a sudden was beginning to experience everything through his career. Didn't know where to turn. He didn't know what to do. He came in and he sat down for a peer session with, with Scott 
and got him in trained. He knew, you know, but he thought, yeah, does this stuff really work? Or, and then he walked through with that individual and talked about, yeah, I see it too. And I hear, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm right there with you. What are we going to do about it? And then made a plan and, and he walked away from that. And, you know, he's the Holly, that's where we met his new mm-hmm. frontier emergency medical symposium. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and th- so they are pushing peer support so much now because all it took for this individual who could have been, you know, maybe, maybe one of those statistics, uh, and now all of a sudden there's a plan going forward that didn't quite know where to go, but he went back to the fire service where, you know, where that's where you guys are. If you understand this, you can provide this. Awesome. So, um, you know, you said something uh, earlier that I wanted to reach back to that really played a huge part uh, early on in my story. And that's when you were talking about finding a therapist. Right. Um, when I came back from Katrina, uh, I knew right then that I had some problems. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did. I, I knew there was some stuff bothering me. And I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to somebody about it. Right. I kind of made that jump. It was kind of the first lead. And this was within a few, you know, weeks of being back from Katrina. Um, so I reached out to my employee assistance program. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to trash all employee assistance programs, right. but it was a disaster. Okay. Mm-hmm. They didn't call me back for like three weeks. Mm-hmm. And what they had done is they found, they said, hey, we found a therapist that will actually talk to you. Right, because nobody wanted to talk to her. Yeah. Hey, we found one. Yeah, I was like, I was like, what kind of a special idiot am I? Right, that you know, they got to find somebody. <laughs> Three weeks. And uh, that'll yeah. agree to talk right. to you. Uh, yeah. it, uh, so I called this phone number they give me. This lady answers the phone. She gives me an address and a time to meet her. And it was at her house, right? So I drive like an hour over there to where she has her home office. And it turns out that she is like a retired therapist that still kind of does some work on the side thing. Um, so she answers the door. Uh, I'd driven past her house like three or four times. Like, now I'm not going to stop. Okay, maybe I should stop. No, I don't really want to do this. Um, it's just, it's very, it was an internal struggle. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm, I'm tired of these symptoms, right? And, the, and to be honest, the symptoms, um, every time I took a shower, I had to shower with the shower curtain open. Because if I didn't, whenever I would go to get out of the shower, there would be a dead body laying right outside of my tub. And it was mm-hmm. the same dead body every time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, that's, that's what drove me. Uh, I, I'm, we're talking like weeks of, you know, having to have my wife sit in the bathroom with me so that I could take a shower. It was debilitating. Wow. Um, so I went to her house, right? Um, she meets me at the door. And she hands me a CD. And on the CD is clouds and the word breathe. And she goes, whenever you start feeling this come on, I want you to put this CD in and it's going to teach you how to breathe. And I'm going, okay. Right? <laughs> okay. And she goes, I really appreciate you stopping by. Um, you know, this should, this should help you out. And she closed the door. That was it? You've got to be. That was it. Flipping kids. So this is That's three what, weeks after three the event weeks. and driving an hour yeah. to her home. Wow. And okay. and the struggle just to stop, right? right. So oh. you add all of those things that, that 
three-week search of, hey, we finally found somebody that will talk to you, blah, blah, blah. You, you add all that stuff together, and that's what I got. So infuriated, I get back in my truck. I leave her driveway. I chunk the CD out the window. Sorry, I'll pay the littering ticket, whatever. Um, <laughs> and I leave. And on my way home, i consciously remembering I will never, ever look for help again. Mm. I can shove this down. I'm not going to think about it. I will go forward. There isn't any other fireman that's like, that has had to, they deal with the same stuff. I can deal with it. So I just pushed it away. And it, it, that's all I did. I just buried and buried and buried. And, and that was all from that process of trying to, instead of me trying to find another therapist, like you have the courage to do, you went through three of those. I went to one and gave up. I was done. Mm-hmm. And then I would let that entire system wreck my life until the point to where I almost lost everything that I had. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, I was introduced to Dr. Tillman. How long wow. was it before that first interaction until your wife said, Ben, you got to figure something out? And that was, uh, Katrina was what, 2005? Yeah. Uh, right. So 2005 is when I had that interaction with that therapist. When I, after it was, you know, a month or so after I got back from Katrina that I tried to get some help through the EAP. And then Trish didn't come uh, to stop me and tell me that there was something wrong until three years ago. Wow. That's so, a long time. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of years of just burying stuff going, nope, that's not, I don't deal with that. I'm stronger than that. And I push it back. I don't deal with that. I'm stronger and I push it back. Mm-hmm. Right. That's just how this works. That's what, that's what they taught me in rookie school. Right, mm-hmm. you just shut up and do your job and deal with it. Wow, so, that's a really good yeah. lesson for us to be to be the Trish. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I have yeah. such yeah. a clear picture in my brain, Ben, of your wife doing that to you. Like, I don't know if it's yeah. accurate yeah. at all, but the picture in my head is so powerful. Like, if my wife did that to me, it would be a very somber moment, but I would mm-hmm. give her all the attention in the world in that because. That's just not something you do. You know, it, yeah. I'm thinking of it like, yeah. you know, it, it's not, you know, just talking to someone. It's no, stop. Hang on. I need your full attention. Right. You need, yeah. you, you need to hear this. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh and it's God. not, not gonna... Steve, it's not, you know, I'm not threatening. I'm leaving you with, right. it is just then you, this is important. Something's mm-hmm. not yeah. right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it, it was so, you know, she didn't cry. She wasn't angry or anything like that. It was just, it was just the most purest, like, just stop. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, just stop. And for so long, I hadn't stopped, right? Everything in life had just become, how do I cover this up? Or how do I not think about this? Mm-hmm. Man, it's so hard to try and not think about something. Yeah. You know, and that that was right. one of the greatest feelings going through that EMDR. Um, you know, yeah. we were talking about um, one of the scenarios that had happened down there at Katrina. And Brenda had asked me a question about something that she had picked up on uh, when we were going through that. So she asked me this question. And I remember sitting in the chair, holding the little paddle, right? And um, I remember I started to tremble my entire body, like, like a huge adrenaline dump, uh, fear, all of these emotions. And I'm, I'm trembling and I'm sweating and shaking. And 
I, I remember Dr. Summer, she reaches over and she grabs my knee. She's sitting across the grab my knee. And I look at her and she said, you're in a safe place, right? She stopped that. She said, you're in a safe place. And then I went through and I worked that particular scenario out. In the moment that I talked about it in that um, processing, then, not just a storytelling way, but an actual grabbing those senses, tying them to the picture, mm-hmm. moving them back there to a memory, just the movement of that image. Um, and the, the weight of the world was lifted. Right. I mean, it's like, like just taking that first breath, like deep, just wow. You know, like, why have I been holding on to this stuff for so long? So you it's know? safe to and say then, in that moment, she gave you permission to not force that memory back down because it was coming back up. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. She, she stopped that, 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 that touch on the knee and the, Hey, you're in a safe place and we're, we're processing this, right? Mm-hmm. Just that 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 knowing that it was okay to talk about it instead of okay I'm getting these feelings I'm going to shove them back and then go somewhere else and belong mm-hmm. um, because at that moment that where you get that catecholamine dump and you get that fight or Absolutely. flight you're shutting that part of your brain off again mm-hmm. so right. by that and then she brought it back online immediately which was fantastic because any other time if I hadn't been in that session or right. or with a mental health expert or somebody that knew what was going on um, I just would have shut down at that point Right. Um, But I didn't. So I worked with that and I moved it into a memory. And like you said earlier, memory still sucks, right? It's still not fun to talk about and that kind of thing. But the difference is, is it's finally a memory, right? Before it was a nightmare. Yes. It it was a nightmare. But now it's just a memory. Mm -hmm. And memories I can deal with, right? I can, I can talk about a memory and I can be sad for a memory or for that situation or have empathy for it. But, you can't do that for a nightmare, right? Right, nightmare. You got to get away from. Mm-hmm. So, so I got a quick question. That, that was, yeah. How and this maybe this is for both of you. How do you prevent? Let's say I'm not saying you're cured, but you've dealt with it. You continue to deal with it. You teach other people how to deal with it. How do you prevent reoccurrence of those thoughts? You know so I, mean? I would love Dan, if it's okay. I would. I would yeah, please. Dan, you you prevent, and and uh, is it all preventable? No, I'm I'm hearing from clients now. I'm hearing from clinicians now who are saying, with everything that's going on with COVID, and I need to I need to talk, I need to see somebody. I'm seeing clients from way back. I'm doing it myself. I actually saw my clinician the other day to work some of the experience off that uh, EMDR wise that I'm that I'm going through as well. So you don't you prevent it by teaching the why. So that you do the what, and I, I keep Holly. I keep going back to that, but I love if that. people mm-hmm. know that the reason we're doing peer support is so that five years from now, uh, you know, you clear the slate and then clear the slate. I mean, there's still memories and there's still sad memories, mm-hmm. but you clear the the place, and then what you've got the opportunity to do is keep it clear. Mm-hmm. We keep it clear by doing the what, which is peer support, which is when I. Like um, Basrop fires, we did. Uh, we did. I uh, did a debriefing for the animal control group, and we all know. You know, we all know our Achilles heels, right? Mm-hmm. Mine are animals, and 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 I know that if I'm going to hear 
those horrific things about what happens to animals. I'm going to need that assistance. Mm -hmm. So I know now that I need to find my person, walk that through for me. And if I can't, that doesn't work. And I need to go in and do, I need to go to the next step. I need to watch myself. I need to, I need to make sure that I'm, that I'm doing the care for myself that I should be doing in order to be able to care for other people. Wow. That makes so sense. Good. Yeah, so, that's good. So, Dan, your question was, how does it not reoccur? And, Brenda, you're saying that, yes, the memories will still be there, but they're memories. They're not, as Ben put them, nightmares anymore. That's absolutely. But they can be compounding again. Just because you work things off your plate in the past, it doesn't mean they won't compound. And if those you experience something in the future that relates to another memory in the past, it can go back and grab that memory in that neural network and begin to impact you again. Oh. So what you do is you get those one by one. That's kind of, Holly, more important than than just knowing that it's a memory and it won't affect you as much. It can go back and grab that memory. It's still in your, it's still, it's still filed back there. It can go back and grab it and it can say, okay, here's something else that related to that and we're compounding again. So if, if we don't want to do that, if we want to keep things filed until we bring them up, then what we need to do is use that peer process each time to walk through those things that we know are larger than normal. I mean, just these normal calls, a threat throat call, somebody, you know, whatever it might be. We don't do them for those unless there was something that stands out that triggers other events. Um, but the key to that is doing the what because we know the why. Mm. And just I think to continue to do is, that. Okay. Yeah. The key to that is the education part. You know, the, that's, that's kind of what uh, Dr. Tillman and I have been trying to go out and, like, when I was talking with a group yesterday, the police department there said, listen, if you can remove the thoughts of formality, the formality of this away from it, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, like a formal process type day. If, if you can remove that thought, and look at it from an education standpoint, right? Just like we do in medicine, right? We do things because it's evidence-based. Uh, we have these conversations uh, because it's evidence-based. So if we have the education of how to recognize it and how to talk about it and when it's time to reach out for help, then when you do have a reoccurrence or if you have a reoccurrence, you know that process. Right. You know and can recognize that it's happening and be able to take the steps uh, at that point, whether it's talking about it, reaching out for help, those types of things, it's an education point, right? It's the, uh, it's the knowing. And that's really helpful because if I know what this, what the triggers are and I know what to do, it feels so much more safe than right. to just go through it and think like, oh my gosh, I don't know right. what's going on. Right. You know? Yeah. Yes. It gives yeah. You a- and if you know them to be common, if you know that a lot of people in this career field experience this, then all of a sudden, it's so much easier, the universality of that, you know, it's happening all over the place. Um, then it's so much easier to say, okay, if others are experiencing this too, maybe I need some education. Yeah. Or maybe I need some assistance with this. And you guys, I want to, I really want to support our profession. I honestly don't believe that uh, people go into mental health for any other reason than to help. Um, I just really feel that there is a, that there is, um, first responders, people in career fields like yours need someone with that specialized training so that 
the story doesn't, a huge story doesn't have to be told before they ever get to the point of being able to practice what they know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, a first responder walks into your office. I get the base of what you do. You don't have to tell me your story. As a matter of fact, I, I don't even need to know a great deal about what's going on. We'll be able to work it pretty quickly because I know you guys. Right. And I think that's, I think their intent, everyone's intent is, well, I want to help these people the best way we can. And I don't think if you're trained, if you're not trained in your culture, and if you're not trained in, in what first responders go through, or what trauma is as a trauma therapist, I think sometimes it's difficult to get to that point before people give up and say, nope, this isn't right. You know? Well, you know, with that, like we talked about yesterday, there's a, um, when we were doing the class for the police department, there's, there was about 40 police officers in this class. And anytime that I talk to a police officer, there's one thing that always comes up when we talk about just having that conversation and that's the trust factor, Mm -hmm. right? Um, There's got to be a trust factor with your person that you talk to. You know, uh, our brothers in blue are going through some terrible, terrible stuff right now and they don't know who they can trust. And I get that, right? That, that has got to be a horrid working environment for a lot of those guys. But when they have that trust factor, when they know that it's somebody that gets what I do, you know, I have that trust with Dr. Tillman because I knew I could tell just when talking with her that she understood how firemen's brains work, right? Which I'm not saying it's all that complicated. It's not, <laughs> but uh, she got how we work. Okay. So I was, so she established that, you know, and I was able to, um, to comfortably, well, as possible talk with her about that stuff so that comfort factor that trust factor uh that's that's something that you have to build you know and and you can't just designate a person i think that's the important thing that ties back to the education side just to have the conversation doesn't mean you have to talk to a professional right Mm -hmm. it just needs to be somebody that you trust that's it you know and can have that conversation with and ben you said something to me um back last year when we met that Mm -hmm. Because I, I was like, well, how do you be a person? Because I'm a fixer. I want to fix your problems. Mm-hmm. And you had said something um, that was really poignant and actually kind of helped me be, a, I think, a better friend since then to my uh, friends is that all you have to do is listen. Mm-hmm. That's it. You don't need to fix That's anything. It. You're not solving any problems. You're just no. listening. And I was like, wow, that sounds really yeah, good. You think, about, <laughs> yeah. you think about what Dr. Sherman said. She, can just, she just listens and picks up and... There's nothing based on me telling you stuff, right? It's just based on me listening to what you have to say. Yeah, and, and exactly being heard in that way without, oh, you should do right, this exactly. or you yeah. should do that. I'm just just being right. heard. So if don't be afraid to be Man, someone's person. Yeah. I, I tell guys that I work with and some guys that I know in other agencies and stuff, if they call up, I just tell them, man, tell me the story. You know? Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. That's, that's all you gotta do. And they're gonna, those guys, they'll bring up the stuff that sticks out to them. If you tell somebody to tell you a story, they're gonna bring up what stuck out to them. Right. Right? I don't have to try and make it, uh, anything, you know, formal or ask certain questions and that kind of thing. I can just say, hey, just tell me what happened, you know, and I'll listen to them. And I, you know, I'll tell guys, I'll just listen, you know, that's so, all you need. So I, I got a question. So you started yeah. this whole story out when, uh, when that, that person talked to you and he asked if you were suicidal. Yeah. And so, I mean, if someone were to ask me that, even if I was suicidal, I would absolutely say no, 
right? So how right. how right. do you press that? How how far do you go with that? If they so, say no, do you just walk away? Um, man, you can ask somebody a direct question, and that's a really tough question to ask, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's okay to ask a direct question to somebody, especially you know we're talking about trust. This is somebody that you know a brother. Um, in the fire service or police officer or somebody that you work with, man, if, if we're going to be true to taking care of ourselves, we've got to be able to ask them tough questions. And if we ask them, hey, are you suicidal? And they look at you and they're like, no. Okay, I'm going to take you for your word, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's, that's it. I'm not going to press it, you know. Uh, I don't think, uh, Brenda, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that just by asking that question, it uh, puts that thought into their mind or anything, correct? Ben, you're absolutely right. And and there's um, study after study uh, regarding that. You know, you're not going to plant anything if it's not there by asking the question. And what you're hoping is it just reiterates to those individuals when you ask that question, uh, you know, God, no, I'm not thinking about suicide. But Dan, then you listen. It's not enough for them just to say, no, I'm not suicidal. Then you listen for, dude, I have nothing to live for. Um, I hate my life. I don't want to do this job anymore. I don't want, you know, I've got no, there's nobody in my life. My wife's leaving me. I mean, then you listen for things that would actually, that you actually think to yourself as a peer, what resource does this individual have? And if there are none, then getting that individual over to somebody that can create that path of resource for them, which would be a therapist, is exactly what you want to do, right? Mm-hmm. And then what you do is get them connected back to their friends. And this is the listening part of this. And I think, you know, uh, Holly brought that up is that Ben said, you just listen. You listen, you, you ask the question. If I can't, they call you and they, and they say, life is just, life sucks. Mm-hmm. I never start out a, a statement with, I hate, um, you know, I'm, I never start out a question with, are you thinking about committing suicide? Unless somebody has mentioned something like, I hate living. And and even that is a statement of, I get that. There are times in life when I hate living too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but asking the question then and then following up that, so, um, you know, who would be impacted by that if they say something like, yes, I, I, just, I don't know, I don't see any other out or I don't. All of those things fall into this. But the key is you're listening for things that say, I have nothing to live for or, I'm giving all my stuff away. I've just decided I'm going to minimize. I'm going to give all my stuff away. I'm going to, you know, so what, what, what are you doing with friends lately? Who are your friends that you normally hang out with? Are you seeing those people much? No, I haven't seen them for four months. And so now what you're beginning to see is a pattern of isolation, of, of backing off from all normalcy. And so suicide is one of those things with the statistics we have, we have to be willing to get into it. But even if you ask the question, the information comes from what comes next, mm-hmm. right? Right. You okay. listen for what are you tell, what are they telling you? Because even if they say, oh, hell no, I wouldn't commit suicide. But then they say, I had somebody actually the other day tell me, I have my dog, there's no one to take care of my dog. And believe it or not, that was a very, very comfortable statement for me. Because I know that this guy has something that he loves something that he's committed to and then I knew okay now we can start working you know now we can start working trauma because we're not thinking about suicide mm-hmm. right 
And so that's what you're listening for. Okay. What is there that's even, I've got two kids. I've got a wife. I don't know what my parents would do. I take care of my parents. And then I instill that. It's like, even if they say to me, no, but I don't, I don't know what my parents would do. I instill that. So your parents depend upon you for, uh, for help. You know, mm-hmm. I instill that as something, okay, so let's start working trauma. Mm-hmm. Right? And Ben, one of the things that you said, I'm trying to remember exactly how you worded it, but you realize within yourself that giving, I, I want to say excuses or permission or understanding in your brain why someone would commit suicide was a big red flag. Um, yeah. I've, I can't tell you, I, I can probably think actually if I really think about it, but there's been a number of people who I've spoken to and they've made comments like that that has been like, well, I'm not suicidal, but I could see why someone would be. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of this like, okay, well, you know, I'm, in my brain when I'm when I'm listening to that, I go, okay, well, that's a red flag for me. Um, yeah. let, let's just keep, keep talking and see what comes up. Um, but mm-hmm. that for me has been one of those things, like people won't necessarily say, I have had some people say, yes, I am suicidal, but there's been others who have said, you know, they've hinted around it or they've, yeah, you know, yeah. they try to normalize yeah. it almost. And yeah. that's when it's yeah. like, okay, time to, time to clue in. And, you know, after yeah. we're done talking, let's yeah. make sure there's a follow-up plan with some more resources. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think, Dan, I think that's a wonderful question because, it's that that red flag element is definitely determined by what the individual says. And if, if what you're seeing is a tendency toward life would be easier if I just killed myself, then absolutely that becomes one of those red flags that you say, okay, that is, you know, that's big. But you guys live in a world of, of death and destruction every single day. And so in a lot of people's brains, that concept of life and death that it's easier if I didn't have to go through this is something that kind of rolls through on a regular basis, right? Mm-hmm. So the listening after that for some is very, very important to see. Is that just a statement of life sucks or is that a statement of life sucks enough that I don't want to do it anymore? Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yep. And there's a huge difference between those two. Good okay. point. Uh, you know, before we wrap this up, I have a question for you, Brenda. How okay for uh for everyone listening? If we work at a department or a company that does not have a peer support group, what are the steps of getting that going? So, um, <laughs> it's so, so easy. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, there are. We just did this statistic yesterday of like ten thousand. Police departments uh, in the United States, 10% have any resemblance of a behavioral health or peer support process. Mm-hmm. So you certainly wouldn't be alone. So how do we get that started? You identify two or three people, and Holly, you are a perfect example of this. Identify two or three people who really have an interest in this. And Ben was too. When Ben got this, he got it. And man, he ran with it. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you find one, two, one, two, three, and then you connect with others like Ben, like me, like uh, other people who have developed those programs in the past. You start looking for uh, maybe uh, the, the uh, 
school, the school, uh, uh, all of the schools usually will offer uh, ICISF programs for their counselors and different things like that that you can get your guys into free. And so you start looking, if there's no money associated, we start looking for people who would be willing to go to peer support training. And then what you do is find education that you can bring in and give, give the behavioral, give credit for the behavioral health component of this so that your guys get that trauma-informed care portion so that even though we don't have a formal team, we are all peers for one another. And, yep. uh, and I think that's where all of a sudden it begins. Then we form um, a departmental team. We form a regional team. Maybe we join a regional team to get support, maybe financial or grant or so there are a lot of ways to go about it. Dan, I think you asked a question, did you? Yes, ma'am. Or was that you, Steve? Okay. So, so you then go back and start looking at, okay, what other resources we have? I think there's going to be a really big push uh, in the future for behavioral health training, both for all levels of first responders. And mm-hmm. so if in doing that, you know, does, uh, does getting that credit uh, through school to be able to get behavioral health credit so that the testing, it helps with the testing or the next level or, you know, all of those things we need to look at. But I think um, getting those few people who are willing to run with it and understand how important the education is of it. So we'll, we're all operating with the same information and we do know why we're doing this. Uh, then all of a sudden we begin to implement the it's the what if this is very easy, you guys. We've, mm-hmm. we've developed that peer to peer process and we'd love to share it with you guys, but it is literally, you know, how do you have that conversation? And just a, you know, just a circle of, okay, you start it. This is what you do. This is what you do. Just steps that will actually get people comfortable with having informal conversations. And then before you know it, you're already doing that. All of you, every one of you are already doing that. Probably half of your department is doing it. It's just now we recognize it is this is what we do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we do this after every time. And if we know somebody hasn't gotten a call, we call somebody and say, Hey, can you give so-and-so a call just to see how they're doing? Yeah. You know? Yes. And again, we never push for people to tell their stories until they're ready because that could be more detrimental than helpful. But we always give them that opportunity to tell it. And when they are ready, then a friend is there for them. Somebody they trust has been said. I really love that all of us need to take responsibility for being the peer support team. It's not just a group of 20. Right. It's every single one of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's every one of you. That's yeah. right. Yeah. We feel really, really strongly about that. You know, I think more immediately, isn't, uh, you might not remember what, what classes is that's coming up, um, at the new frontier emergency symposium. It's the stress management, um, yeah. certification, yeah. right? That we're going to be doing up there. Yeah, we're going to. Okay. Yeah, I don't know exactly to what level that certification is going to be because we're not doing ICISF classes, but it will be a peer-to-peer, individual right. peer-to-peer certification, right? And you guys yeah. are doing breakout so sessions for that. Like yeah, a couple hours at a time. Yeah, I think there's a pre-con and and family uh, breakout. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So, but all of them should be going in this direction because. Um, you're right, Holly. I think that individual, then I take it on myself. Um, if Ben had been educated in this, think about the first time he saw that, that body laying outside of his, 
outside of his bathtub, it would have been, now this is just intriguing versus, okay, now I'm, I'm nuts. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is intriguing. What the heck is that guy doing there? <laughs> and, uh, and so then we address it from that perspective versus, can I bring you back from thinking that you've gone nuts and that your whole life is just falling apart? Yeah. Awesome. Well, I feel like I could sit here uh, me too, for the day. next two or three hours and just <laughs> eat lunch and chat with you guys some more. Um, Dr. Toman and Ben, I can't thank you guys enough for telling your stories, sharing where you're at, uh, talking about how we can help people that are experiencing some tough stuff that comes up. And, um, and Steve, I want to thank you for it. actually putting this together and showing your vulnerability yeah. last week. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm happy to do it. It's, it's not, um, it hasn't always been easy, but, uh, the more you talk about it, the easier it is. And, um, man, I just feel like I'm totally a kindred soul with, with, with Ben. I've never even met you, man, but, uh, yeah. just, <laughs> I know. oh my goodness. Man, our, our stories are so similar. It's, it's, uh, yeah. it's eerie. Yeah. That's crazy. And I have a feeling there are many, many more that have the same type of story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we can that, do this that, again. that was the, no, no, that's, you know, the, that story, that's what kind of ties everybody together, you know, it's just, yeah. you know, we talk about it and that's, that's great. That's what's, that's awesome with this program that's going on now is that, you know, you guys had us come on and I mean, I like talking to people anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> I'll come on, I'll tell you whatever story you want to hear. So I do. <laughs> awesome. Right. You guys, well, thank you so much for doing, for being willing to, to push what you know is going to be good for a whole population of, of first responders. I mean, this is, this is the key to wellness and uh, where it starts. And awesome. so that's phenomenal. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I we'll, uh, well, I have yeah. a million more questions, so maybe we'll have to do another uh, few episodes with you guys. <laughs> yeah, we'd love, no, we'd love that. Yeah. Awesome. We'd love that. Okay. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it there. And, uh, We'll put some some links and everything in the show notes on the website uh, for people who uh, want to reach out to either uh, Dr. Tillman or or Ben. And we'll we'll put whatever you're comfortable yeah. putting up there, and uh, sure, we'll uh, we'll leave it at that. But thank you guys for listening, and uh, we'd love to hear from you on what you're learning about this stuff, what is going on at your department or your agency, and you know the best way that we break the stigma is by continuing to talk about it. So uh, hopefully, this few episodes has shown everybody that, and We'll leave it there. Thanks for your time, guys.